is definitely the most embarrassing period of my life. But if you if you can go through that transition where you've really taken yourself apart, um, you can then build yourself back up and you can move forward. From CMC Markets, this is the Artful Trader. And there are lots of opportunities. Hundred point swing on the doubt. You can make a lot of money in a bubble. I'm using the signals that I'm feeling really emotional to trigger an analysis. Because I think it's it's these painful trades that are so instructive. Hi and welcome to the second season of the Artful Trader. I'm Michael McCarthy, Chief Market Strategist at CMC Markets Asia Pacific. Each episode, we'll hear the highs and lows from the industry's experts and hear their journey to mastering the art of the financial markets. Today, we meet Nick Leeson, the original rogue trader whose unchecked risk-taking caused the collapse of bearings, the more than two-century-old merchant bank. It was considered the biggest financial scandal of the 20th century. Nick Leeson was a 28-year-old futures trader working on the Singapore Exchange for Bearings Bank. To hide a junior colleague's mistake, he put the losses in an error account that became known as the 5.8s account. He tried to trade his way out of these losses on the Nikkei futures market. But then a huge earthquake hit the Japanese city of Kobe, causing seismic losses on the Asian markets and sending Leeson's trading positions into a tailspin. The losses eventually reached 1.4 billion US dollars. Leeson fled Singapore, leaving a note reading, I'm sorry. After seven months on the run, he was caught by police in Frankfurt and extradited to Singapore, where he was sentenced to six and a half years in prison. Nick was released on compassionate grounds after four years when he developed colon cancer. Now Nick Leeson is on the talking circuit and consults big banks about risk management. Speaking from Galway in Ireland, welcome Nick. Well, hello, Nick, and thank you for joining us today on the Artful Trader podcast. I'm looking forward to it, Michael. Um, Nick, I'd like to go right back to the beginning um, and start by asking you what your childhood was like and and what did it teach you about money and success? Success was always important to me. Um, It was probably the thing that drove me on more than anything else. So going through my formative years at school, at junior school, I was always an overachiever. I would have always been top of the class. I wouldn't have been anywhere else and I would have been taking the exams that were a year ahead or two years ahead of where I was. So success was extremely important. Um, I don't think money ever really entered into it. It was more success than anything else. I come from a very working class background. I grew up on a council estate in Watford. Wouldn't have been normal for, for a person from that sort of environment to go to work in the city of London at that time. But the real motivation for me and everything that I did was being successful. Right. And that certainly turned up in your early career. Yeah, it did. And and I think one of the things, I suppose, when you look back at it um, after all of these years, and I I do this on a number of of occasions, I suppose, I had a very exalted opinion of what success looked like. Um, Success for me was being at the top of of what I was doing, be that an organisation or anything else that I was doing at that time making the important decisions. Um, I didn't have a problem making decisions. You know, that thirst for success, I suppose, was coupled with a with what became a fear of failure. But, uh, I mean, I suppose during my early years, it was because I didn't experience failure. So I think it's important to experience both. Mm. And mine was very much, you know, it was success after success after success. And that took me through to about the age of, 23, 24, when I was working at Bearings in London and then moving over to Singapore. And it was only really then at that age that I started to experience or encounter the first thing that I couldn't immediately cope with. And 
you know that led to some led to some really bad decision making and, and what became a fear of failure but it probably didn't start out that way it was just the fact that there hadn't been a great deal of failure up until that point. Yes, the dark side of the success coin. Now, Nick, I know that uh, that was 23 years ago. Um, while it is a big part of your public story, it's not the only part of your story. There's a lot more, and there's a lot more to your life than just the events of 1995. But in essence, the story is you, as a good boss, looked after a junior employee who'd made an error. The error was around £20,000, which I guess would have been close to the annual salary of a junior dealer at that time. And in creating an error account and putting that loss in the account, you then went to try and trade out of the loss so that it could be zeroed out and nobody would be the wiser. The problem was the market didn't cooperate. The position went against you. And to try and recoup those losses, the position was increased. It got tougher and tougher. And as the margin calls came in, you started selling uh, option straddles on the Nikkei index to pay for those margin calls. And this all came unstuck on uh, January 17th in 1995 when a 6.9 magnitude earthquake hit Kobe. Is that roughly the story? Yeah, that's roughly the story. Um, The Kobe earthquake for me personally is is a little bit overdone in terms of its significance. It was it was an important event at the time because it, it you know it sent the Japanese markets into a to a bit of a tailspin. But for obviously we're talking to people who understand the markets. At that stage, my position was just increasing dynamically as the market was falling. It was totally unmanageable. I was out of control. There was nowhere really to turn and. You know, I, like, I, I can't remember what the exact numbers were, and you might have them in front of you, but I was long something like 80,000 futures. I was short something like 100,000 straddles. So this is a position that you, you know, even with the best will in the world and the best IT and the best systems would be very, very difficult to manage. And I was trying to do it on the back of a piece of paper. Wow. Um, I, I did actually do some quick numbers. I took some numbers out of uh, your book, Rogue Trader. Uh, and just on the index position alone, I calculated that the at the time and at yeah. those exchange rates, it was uh, the index position was equivalent of about 120 billion US dollars. Does that sound about right? Well, I mean, I'm not I'm not going to dispute yeah. it with you, Michael. Um, yeah, it's, like, it, it, it was <laughs> <laughs> even for me right now. When you've mentioned the number to me, it's. Uh, you know, that that sounds difficult to compute. But um, for me, it was all avoidance, right? I um, right. get a statement put on my desk, which would show the position and I'd sit down and I'd try and work out about how I was going to try and unwind the position. But at some time in 1993, the, perhaps the beginning of 94, what was a two page statement was now a hundred page statement and I didn't even want to look at it. So the girls would put it straight into the drawer because that was my failure. That was my problem. And, you know, that that statement, if you like, those pieces of paper were the announcement of my failure. So rather than look at it and try and work out what I was going to do, it was far easier to avoid it and just get it placed straight in the drawer and and ignore it. Well, in trying to tease out some uh, lessons for traders here, Nick, I, I'm not trying to cause you pain. I understand this might not be easy for you, but I'd like to just touch on some points um, in that story. To start with, what made you initially open the Five Eights account? Well, the Five Eights account was always open, um, Michael. It, as you know, going back to floor trading days, um, there's lots of errors 
you know, there's a there's a hundred hundred and fifty people in the Nikkei two two five trading pit at the time. Um, everything's done by hand signals and, and eye contact. So if you can imagine one hundred and fifty people in a room not bigger than maybe ten meters in 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 diameter. So, you know, people would think that they were trading with somebody and they were actually trading with the person behind. Prices were changing all of the time. So you might think you traded at four. The other person thought you traded at five. So there would always be discrepancies that needed to be reconciled during the day. Um, And so typically, you know, 95% of those discrepancies would be reconciled on the spot. You'd you'd have a runner who'd go over communicate with the other person's runner and you would come to some form of agreement. 5% of the errors wouldn't be reconciled and you'd have to either take a hit on it or take a profit on on that particular discrepancy. So that was what the 5.8s account was originally used for. So putting that trade in there was just normal course of business? It was normal course of business in the beginning. And then when the trades went back to London, which was the reconciliation vehicle, if you like, the, the settlements department in London... And they were probably seeing 50 to 60 trades a day. And then eventually the head of settlements just basically said, we don't want to see the trades, we just want to see the net P&L. Uh, and, and that's where the avenue, I suppose, for me um, a, a arrived, where it could be used for a different purpose. Not, not that that's what I was planning, but its, it's use changed. And so when this occasion occurred, as you as you said, that we had the error, which was a reconciliation that we couldn't agree to, you know, maybe at three or four o'clock in the morning, um, the trade went into what then became the illegal 5.8s account. So it wasn't born out of the error because it already existed, but um, its purpose changed then at, at that particular point. It's a fascinating story. More from Nick Neeson in a moment. This is The Artful Trader, uncovering the highs, and in Nick's case, the lows, to mastering the art of the financial markets. If you missed it, last series, I sat down with trading veteran Linda Rasky, who's been in the game for 36 years. She's developed a training regime that would make even an elite athlete break into a sweat. Staying in that moment and concentrating and having complete focus, it's a single-mindedness. You can hear Linda and all of our previous interviews at theartfultraderpodcast.com. Now back to my chat with Nick Leeson in Ireland. When did you first start to worry and what was that like? You worry from the first minute that you do it, right? Because you, you know, you asked me about my, my, my childhood at the beginning. You know, my childhood was pretty much like everybody else's, I would imagine. You know the difference uh, between right and wrong. Um, and this was wrong. I worked for three banking organisations. When I left school, I worked for Coots, which is, which is the Queen's Bank, where, where the Queen and the Royal Family have their money. I then went to work for Morgan Stanley, so I was headhunted to Morgan Stanley. Um, really good organisation, very well run, uh, very well controlled. And then I was headhunted to Bearings to head up their Japanese futures and options area. Um, Bearings and Morgan Stanley are chalk and cheese. Um, Bearings was everything that Morgan Stanley wasn't. Um, it didn't have strong controls. It was very aggressive in the way that it approached the markets, very profitable, but the controls and the way that they looked after the business was, everything was was trying to catch up with the amount of business that they were doing. And at Bearings, there were lots of errors. And, you know, one of the things that I often say is I might have been the last person to put a trade into an error account at Bearings 
but I wasn't the first. And the problem with that, and and it's true of any business, not just a financial organisation, but but any business, if a behaviour is wrong, it's always wrong. You can't create situations where that behaviour is okay that time. So I uh, I constantly saw people putting trades in error accounts, holding them for, for a couple of days and then closing them out, you know, break even, um, sometimes making a small profit. And if you if you allow that to occur in any organisation and, and you, you even condone the behaviour, but you don't you don't deal with the behaviour when it happens, people see it, people hear it. And so when it becomes your time um, to put a trade in an error account, it's not that big step that it should be because you've seen so many other people do it. And, and that's the problem. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of the issues that we've seen in financial markets over the last 23, 25 years can be narrowed down to people's behaviour, people's conduct. And if you, if you have a culture or a conduct where you know, somebody turns a blind eye, then it's likely that that behaviour is going to occur again. I mean, clearly in in this situation, there's a structural risk management issue. And with the benefit of hindsight, many banks have learnt from this this episode. Um, And clearly the separation of back office and front office functions was a structural issue here. Do you think in some ways you were scapegoated for others' failures? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think you go through a long... I was in prison in Singapore for a total of... Between Germany and Singapore, I was in prison for a total of four and a half years... You, you, you take um, a long time uh, at self-reflection, looking at yourself, the things that you did, uh, trying to understand why you made some of the decisions that you did. Um, I, I, I'm definitely not a scapegoat. I mean, I took all of those trades. I took on all of the risk. There was every likely, likelihood that it would have happened at some stage. But no, I'm definitely not a scapegoat. Nick, I promise you we'll move on soon. But could you just talk us through how it all came unstuck and how you're feeling as that happened? From 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 the beginning, from the moment I first put something into the illegal five eights account, I expected a knock on the door every minute of every single day. Right. I mean, the Treasury Department in London over this period sent me nearly six hundred and fifty million pound on a bank that has a capital base of two hundred and fifty million pound. We had two accounts in Singapore. We had a London account. We had a Tokyo account. You compare it to the Singapore International Monetary Exchange's records. And there would be a discrepancy every single day for three years. And that discrepancy is my illegal 5.8s account. Um, but nobody did the reconciliation. So these are really basic things that happen at least once a day in, in, in most major banks, probably far more often now than uh, that, that once a day scenario. But simple reconciliations weren't done. So you, you live in constant fear that you're going to get that knock on the door and then Strangely, what happens when you don't get the knock on the door for a period of time is you you get a little bit more, um, not comfortable with the situation, but you get more confident that you have a little bit more time to correct the situation. Um, so then you start thinking in terms of mm. weeks and then to months, but um, the auditors are going to come in. So the external auditors, and then they come in and they don't ask difficult questions and I'm the point of referral, so it's easy to divert them round a different path. Now, at the end of 1992, there was a $5 million loss in the 5.8s account, and I hadn't hidden it. And on the last day of the financial year, I just phoned up the Treasury Department in London. I asked them for $5 million, told them it was because um, the exchange was looking for additional margin because of the volatility in the markets, which had a, a semblance of truth, but wasn't truthful at all. 
the money came in the day after the year end and um, when the auditors came in they that they saw that there was an intercompany uh, balance difference of five million dollars and it's part of the audit records from that time it was put down as a foreign exchange discrepancy and then fast forward into 23rd of February 1995 they sent somebody over from the settlements department in London, I think he set foot in Singapore at the beginning of February. And on that 23rd day, he did a reconciliation. Right, He should have done it on the first day that he got there. And lo and behold, there's a huge discrepancy of 100,000 futures, 60,000 options, which dwarfed the remainder of the position. And, and he came to me and, and said, look, you know, I'd like you to explain this discrepancy. There is no... There is no explanation. So that was the day that I hightailed it out of Singapore uh, and could have could have made my way to Australia. But um, unfortunately, I decided to go the other route and try to get back to Europe. So so it, it, the jig was up. Right? It, it was it was clear it was all going to come out. What did that feel like? Was it relief? Was it disappointment? Was it what was it? Well, you get, you you go through a, a strange set of of experiences. To be honest with you, I mean, the first one that kicks in is a classic fight or flight type of scenario. And for me, you know, the first thing that kicked in is pure self preservation, and 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 you really don't know quite how calamitous your actions are. I, I, I'm not even sure that I com- completely computed at that time that I was going to go um, that I was going to go to jail. I didn't know that the bank was only worth two hundred and fifty million pound, so I knew that it was going to be significant <laughs> impact. But I didn't know that it was going to be quite as bad as it was. But the first thing was I needed to get back right. to an environment where I could protect myself and I could protect my wife, and and it really was just a case of trying to get my wife at the time back to an environment where she'd be safe, and then for me to start to face the music. So it wasn't really until I got back to Germany that you you know that you start to experience a bit of relief that it's over but then you're faced with another battle because you're you know I've I've never spent a day in prison and I'm about to spend a lot of time in prison and and work out how you're going to get through that period and it's tough. How did you prepare for jail? Well I mean there was no preparation because I was just thrown into it I didn't have any uh, I didn't have any lead time. (laughs) Bang. Uh, there's nothing to do. I mean, you have uh, Gurkhas right. who guard the walls with guns. I was in maximum security. I, I wasn't in Changi, which would have been an older prison. So I was in a place called Tanamera, which is next door to it. Very high control over what you do. You're locked up for 23 hours a day. The walls are, are pristine white. If you write on them, you're punished uh, quite aggressively. So you sleep on the floor, the floor's very rough and uneven. There's three people to a cell. A cell is six foot by nine foot. You're allowed three books a month um, and it's extremely hot. You know, it's not just the psychological difficulty and the boredom of being uh, in Singapore. The, the, the heat and the pressure of the heat adds to that. Everybody's a triad gang member. Um, there's not a great deal of violence. The one thing that I will say about the the prison system in Singapore is that it is safe um, because they have so much control. I mean, there are high response units that are on uh, constant standby. If there is a gang clash, um, they're in that prison within 60 seconds with big sticks. Um, and however violent the clash was, you rest assured they will put it down more violently. And a lot of people will be carted off to the punishment cells and you wouldn't see them for a long period of time. Nick, how did the other prisoners regard you? 
I was a hero. Right. <laughs> You'd taken on the system. Yeah, well, no, I, I think it, it was even more ridiculous than that. As far as they were concerned, um, they, they thought I'd stole $2.2 million and got away with it. <laughs> and that was enough to make you a hero? Well, I was like an uber criminal to them because they were doing, you know, they were selling a few... few right. They, they were selling a few joints or a bit of weed and... Um, and, and and we're getting banged up for five years. I was I, I was misappropriating two point two billion dollars, and I I got six and a half. So, one of the best questions I was asked at a boardroom uh, at one of the banks was, "What made you successful working in the organisations that you did?" And and the answer would be that I was extremely socially adept. Um, you know, I come from a very working class background. And, and my friends were all, you know, they'd all be repairing cars, you know, delivering post. So I'd be socialising with those people and I would then be working during the day with somebody who's just fresh out of Eton or has just got a first out of Cambridge University. And I could, I could flip between the two lifestyles fairly easily. And it was exactly the same in prison. You know, I was able to mix within the prison. I'm probably still to this day the only person in Singaporean or, or the history of the Singaporean prison service who has never had to be or forced to join one of the triad gangs. Okay. Well, they clearly had, had held you in high regard. But Nick, how did prison change you? Uh, it changes you in lots of different ways. I mean, I think anybody who says that it doesn't change them is, is, is just trying to avoid the situation. You, I think the big thing for me and the big positive was I kept a diary every day um, looking at things that I did. Uh, trying to ascertain how I should have behaved, you know, the right decision that I should have made. And it's really through that uh, hard-hitting self-reflection. It's a cliche. It's about looking at yourself in the mirror, um, really looking at the good parts, the bad parts, um, uh, admitting to them, acknowledging them. And then from that point, you can move forward. I think if you don't go through that process, it's impossible to move forward or or your life continues as a lie. Um, but if you really get down into that, you know, that real grimy detail of what you did and what you were, you come to the conclusion that you didn't particularly like the way that you reacted in certain situations or the person you became. So you try to change those parts of you going forward. I think, you know, like it's important, I think it's important for everybody to have self-esteem. You know, that period of my life is is definitely the most embarrassing period of my life. But if you if you can go through that transition where you've really taken yourself apart, you can then build yourself back up and you can move forward. And, you know, that means I can stand on a stage, I can talk to large audiences, and if somebody wants to have a go at me, that's fine. You know, I'm not I'm not immune to people coming coming to events that I do without some people being negative. Um, but rest assured, I can defend myself and I'm, I'm comfortable and I'm confident in in my defence. If somebody highlights something that clearly I did wrong during that period, I'm the first one to admit it. So that comes through that process in prison. The other thing that was was important to me and, it, and is still an important way that I lead my life at the moment, and it's, it's quite simple. Um, you know, we used to have a prison guard every morning who would come round and he would turn the water on at seven o'clock in the morning and he would come then come back at eight o'clock and turn it off that that was your water for for the day mm. um so you can imagine you're woken up at about 6 a.m in the morning it's hot it's starting to get oppressive 
you start to think negative thoughts as you all do that starts to get you into a negative spiral that's that, that's accelerating as you go downwards uh, and then the guard comes past and he t- you can see him turn the water on behind your cell and an hour and then there's no water mm-hmm. right so the water doesn't arrive because because of the overcrowding so it goes to you know cell block a before it goes to cell block e and i'm on e um, and then at eight o'clock, he'd come back and he'd turn it off. It used to drive me absolutely crazy. And I'd be I'd be like a coiled spring in that cell, ready to jump out, grab hold of the guard uh, and wreck him as bad as I could as soon as he opened that door. And then eventually you realize that the only person that you're upsetting is yourself. Mm. Um, and he's got a job to do and he's going to do that. Uh, and he's going to do that to the best of his ability. And he's going to go home at five o'clock and probably go for a few beers and have dinner with his wife and whatever else and never think about you again. So the only person you're upsetting is is yourself. And once you get to that mindset, um, and this is the way that I characterize it, there's things in your life that you can influence and there's things in your life that you can't influence. The things that you can't influence, just forget about. Um, don't worry about them. Focus on the things that you can influence. So that's how I live my life these days. You know, that's the way I think about things. If somebody hits my car, um, you know, the natural instinct is to get upset, to, <laughs> you know, and, and then people will go over and over this process for the next day, the next week and, and whatever else. But it's not going to change things. You know, it's a car. You know, there are other things that you can focus on to improve your life rather than getting up. Well, it's an interesting parallel with markets, isn't it? I mean, as traders, we can't change the market. The only thing we can do is change the way we react to it, the way we act in it. Exactly. And uh, yeah, I mean, markets are going to be irrational from time to time and nobody can explain them. And their, their irrationality mm-hmm. is going <laughs> to is going to outlast your solvency. Um, and, and, and so you do need to change and adapt. Mm-hmm. And it is about constantly changing and adapting. And Nick, all you've told me so far uh, reminds me of that old saying, when you're going through hell, just keep going. What were the traits that allowed you to survive jail? Um, I, was it uh, stubbornness, persistence, resilience? To a certain degree, I think it's some of the things that got me into trouble as well. So, so that stubbornness. <laughs> you know, I, I was diagnosed with cancer whilst I was in prison in, in Singapore. So I spent some time in the punishment cells. Um, I was in the punishment cells for 31 days. I came out, I'd lost a lot of weight. Uh, and then um, I started to experience a lot of pain in my stomach. They diagnosed me as, as having a low as a low red blood cell count, and they were trying to t- treat that with by giving me um, iron tablets. But eventually, through various different methods, I ended up in a uh, in in a hospital outside of the prison, and they diagnosed me with colon cancer. And then, you know, I had an emergency operation to remove a third of my colon. I was sent back to the prison. And they wanted to give me chemotherapy. Everybody expected me to be sick during the chemotherapy. And it was more a case of fairly soon after having the operation, I was back outside exercising, doing some stupid pull-ups and push-ups and stuff, which was basically my way of saying to them, you know, whatever you may think, I'll get through this. And so I don't know if that's the British stiff upper lip or whether that's just stubbornness again. But, you know, it's important as traders, I suppose, to... It's a fine line. Yeah, you, you need to be disciplined. You need to be structured. And, I mean, I still trade my markets, Michael, from a, from a personal perspective. And still, you know, taking that loss and pulling that trigger still comes tough. And, you know, like I've got a background which should be 
uh, which would make me very proficient in doing that. And even to this day, I tend to allow the trade to run to the extent of the stop rather than rather than taking a loss early. Um, Nick, I'm fascinated to hear that. I actually had that as a question to ask if you had traded since then. You're clearly still trading. I know traders don't like to talk about the actual positions they have, but would you mind sharing with our listeners what markets you trade? Um, I, I trade markets that are live in my in my time zone. So I'll, I'll trade FTSE. Uh, I trade DAX. I do a little bit in the Dow in the afternoons. Uh, and then gold, um, because gold's you know 23 24 years ago gold used to move two dollars on a day and it wouldn't move uh, it wouldn't move ten dollars in a year and you can see nice 15 20 dollar moves on gold at the moment if you if you get it right and then the two local currencies are are euro and sterling so probably six markets and and so nick now you're on the talking circuit and and one of the main themes that you discuss is risk management and risk intelligence so what should banks and financial organizations be doing now well, I, I mean, first off, I think banks and financial organisations have improved um, significantly since uh, 1995. Um, I think, you know, where you have a problem within a financial organisation, it's always in the human realm. Um, and whether that's an oversight or that's somebody doing wrong, it is in that environment. So if you can, um, you know, if you can take some of that out by using technology that um, does that analysis for you and is, is really challenging what's going on within the organization. But it is about challenge. You know, I was never challenged throughout the three years that I was in Singapore. Nobody asked a sensible question. Sometimes, you know, people find it hard when you think of financial organizations, people kind of get stuck in those mid-management roles where they're getting paid a really good salary. They can't get a comparative salary in any other industry and they don't really want to rock the boat and we need some people who rock the boat and ask the difficult questions from time to time. I did an, an event at the, in the city of London in, in, in Barbican about a year ago and there, it was to a group of treasury professionals and you know, at the end of the meeting I was standing around having coffee with some of the people and, uh, and one guy came over to me and he was you know, in a reasonably senior management position within the treasury department at, at the bank and it was a large bank and he said to me, uh, there's a real problem at our bank. I'm really concerned about something. I've got an email. It's been in my outbox for a period of time now. I, wa- I want to send it to the CEO. What would you advise? And, you know, my honest answer was, look, I don't know the circumstances, so I can't, I, I can't comment on that. Um, but my, my piece of advice would be something that I, I feel very strongly about. You know, you'll get another job. You won't get another reputation. So try to do the right thing. You know, like I, for one, will never forget that period and and, and the impact of it and, you know, the fact of how embarrassing it is. I mean, there's no way I can sugarcoat it. Now, Nick, at the moment, the Australian banking and finance industry is currently undergoing a royal commission. There's a huge amount of scrutiny around misconduct. Um, What could we learn from your situation? I mean, misconduct is is a big theme around the world. And wherever you look at something going wrong, uh, within any organisation, it's not just banking. It, it comes down to conduct. So, the the type of things that we uh, that, that we try to bring to the fore is, you know, banking's always been about KYC, know your customer. Um, we like to think about KYP so that you know your people, you know what your people are are, are capable of, what they're doing, and and you understand that. You know, I was surrounded by people that could have helped me. 
and I didn't do a really simple thing. And that simple thing was ask for help and advice. Um, because if I'd done that, I would have been steered down a different route and the whole story would have been very, very different. I was 25 years old. I thought I could cope with um, anything. Unfortunately, as the story tells us, when we fast forward to uh, 2018, I couldn't. Uh, and in not asking for help and advice, I, I made some really, really bad decisions. But genuinely, everybody is surrounded by people that can help them. Communication within organisations, banking and otherwise, needs to improve um, because people don't naturally bring their concerns and problems to the table. The other simple piece of advice that um, a, a good friend of mine who's a chief executive of a major European bank uses is when new people start at his bank, he, he tells them about my story. Um, but then what he tells them is that he doesn't encourage them to make mistakes, but he says uh, or, or, or he tells them that he knows that they will make mistakes. Um, and he encourages them to come and talk to him or the appropriate people about those mistakes. What he tells them that they can't do is hide those mistakes. I think one of the problems that banking has is that a lot of the culture and the conduct is ingrained in the system uh, and it gets passed down. Um, the sooner we can uh, eradicate some of those, the safer the environment will become. I'd like to just finish off on a personal note. Um, you said, um, as a young man, success was the key to everything. Um, yet you'll be remembered for one of the largest trading losses in history. I mean, thank goodness for Jerome Cavell. But what does success look like to you now? Oh, it's, a, it's a simple thing, really. And um, I, after I'd completed the psychology degree, I wrote a book called Back from the Brink with a reasonably well-known psychologist in the UK. I, I speak about my need for success. He, he took that slightly differently. Um, he saw it as a need for status. And then during your business career, you build up status relationships with your family, with people that you work with people that you work for um, and it, he ends the first chapter with a phrase which says when an immature person has status they will do anything absolutely anything to protect it um, and to, to a certain extent that embodies what success looked for me at that time and it kind of tells the story um, but in terms of what success looks like now you, you know, he taught me some simple things. For some people, putting food on the table for your children to eat is success. So it's a, it's a million miles away from where I was when I was at the top of the organisation uh, making the important decisions, but it's still success. That was Nick Leeson. For more information about Nick, you can go to his website at nickleeson.com. For previous episodes of The Artful Trader and more information about CMC Markets, head to our website theartfultraderpodcast.com where you can also access some limited time offers. Make sure you don't miss an episode. Subscribe free in your favourite podcast app. The Artful Trader is an original podcast series by CMC Markets, a global leader in online trading. The information in this podcast is general in nature and does not speak to your personal financial situation. I'm Michael McCarthy. Thanks for listening. This is The Artful Trader.